Hello, my name is Dr. Prashant Deshpande. Welcome to Dr. D's Table Talk. The purpose of this video channel is to provide basic understanding of the common medical conditions and facts based on science. In this video channel, I plan to interview experts in the medical fields and want to cover topics ranging from vaccination to healthy diets and everything else in between. The opinions expressed in these discussions are of the individuals and do not represent the institutions they are affiliated with. This discussion is for informational purposes only and not intended to give any specific medical advice. We encourage you to contact your personal physician with your medical questions. They are best equipped to offer specific medical advice pertaining to your individual care. Today we'll be discussing about food allergy and food intolerance, which is a very interesting topic for me and would love to learn from an expert. We have with us today, Dr. David Stukas, who is Professor of Clinical Pediatrics at Nationwide Children's Hospital. He runs his food allergy treatment clinic there and he also established a chronic asthma complex care clinic since 2011. He's board certified in allergy immunology and pediatrics. He's, he did his medical training at University of Pittsburgh, did his residency at Nationwide Children's Hospital, and did a fellowship in immunology at Cleveland Clinic. He has devoted his life and career to communicating evidence-based medicine and best clinical practices to colleagues, professionals, medical professionals of all kinds, parents, patients, and to the public. He is very active on his social media account, on Twitter and Instagram, and he believes in combating misinformation through public media, and he has literally authored a textbook on social media. Welcome to the program, Dr. Dave, as he's affectionately called by his patients. Thank you for joining us in spite of your busy schedule. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you. So the question in our mind is, what is the difference between food intolerance and food allergy, and why is it important that we should know about this? I think this is a great topic. It, it's near and dear to my heart. And I have these conversations with families every single day uh, in the clinical setting. And definitions are really important because uh, we need to clarify allergy versus intolerance versus who knows what else may be going on as the diagnosis absolutely impacts prognosis as well as risk if you actually eat the food. When it comes to a food allergy, a body, somebody's body, if they have food allergy, will form an allergy antibody called immunoglobulin E or IgE. Therefore, every single time they eat that food, regardless of the form, within a few minutes, rarely longer than a couple of hours later, their IgE antibody will recognize that food protein is foreign, it will unlock the allergy cells in the body, and they will have a reaction. And the reactions can uh, change over time and they can vary between people, but oftentimes will consist of something like hives, or itchy rash, sometimes you can have swelling, it may progress to vomiting, wheezing, you can even have upper respiratory symptoms like congestion and watery eyes or anaphylaxis. So clearly if you have a food allergy, we need to identify that and then talk about avoidance of that food because you would be at risk to have a more severe allergic reaction. This is very different than a food intolerance. Food intolerances do not involve the immune system. It is not an antibody mediated condition. It's really difficulty with digestion. The most common example would be lactose intolerance. Right. For those who have lactose intolerance, when they eat foods that have lactose, which is a, a simple sugar, most often found in dairy products, their body can't digest that lactose due to a lack of an enzyme, 
and the sugar passes through their intestines undigested. As it does that, it essentially uh, employs the osmotic effect we all learned about in chemistry class, oh. and it sucks water into the bowels. That's very uncomfortable. That causes cramping and bloating and diarrhea. Um, but that doesn't put people at risk to have a, an allergic reaction or anaphylaxis. So we need to differentiate these uh, when, whenever we diagnose somebody. And generally, as we understand, is lactose intolerance is less common in infants and children, correct? And as the age increases, it starts becoming more prevalent. Yes, you know, true food intolerances are, are pretty rare. Uh, even food allergies are relatively rare, only affecting about five to eight percent of all children. Uh, so the vast majority of people who have symptoms when they eat certain foods, it's probably not a specific response to that food, uh, but we all can be impacted by our dietary habits. Uh, if we eat a lot of fiber, we're going to naturally have you know, different bowel movements and cramping and bloating compared to somebody who doesn't. Uh, same thing if you drink a gallon of milk all at once, which is a very bad idea for many reasons, you're not going to feel very well. <laughs> it doesn't mean that you're intolerant of the milk. It just means that you know, it's difficult to digest for various reasons. Sure. Earlier, you mentioned about allergies attacking own body cells. Immunological system is supposed to protect the body. So why are we seeing increased incidence of allergy and allergy-like reaction over the last eight to 10 years? What is the mechanism of it? And there is something called as clean hypothesis. Is that hypothesis still valid? If you could explain to us, we'd appreciate it. Yeah, the, the, the development of allergies is a very complex um, system. It, it often starts with parents. So parents who have allergies or food allergy or eczema or asthma uh, will often have children who are predisposed to develop allergies as well. So it starts with a genetic predisposition. And then we believe that early life interactions with things in the environment may then tell some of those genes to turn on or off. Uh, but there's nothing, there's no one quick easy thing that says, this is why you have allergies or not. So it's really complicated. And anybody who says otherwise, it says it's the microbiome and take probiotics and you'll prevent allergy. Right. Well, frankly, it's, it's a very, that's just one piece of the puzzle. Sure. Um, IgE antibody initially evolved to help human beings fight off parasites. Uh, and this is what it's really good at. Well, as we've become a cleaner society and, and as a whole, um, the IgE kind of got bored. Uh, so we didn't have to protect ourselves against parasitic infections, which were very common uh, a couple of hundred years ago. And now the IgE antibody can form an abnormal response to a very harmless protein, whether it's a peanut or ragweed pollen or cat dander or so on and so forth. We know through the hygiene hypothesis that infants who are born and raised in uh, sort of dirtier environments, especially with exposure to endotoxin and different bacteria and farm animals and things like that, they are less likely to develop allergies because their immune systems are practicing against these things all the time and they don't get bored. Whereas if we sort of sterilize everything, then immune systems are more likely to start to react to things that they don't need to react to. So it's a very, it's, this could be a two hour long conversation, but hopefully sure. that sort of sets the, sure. stage, the stage for no easy answers. There's a lot that goes into it, um, but it's really interesting. Sure. Uh, it looks like to me, allergists love to use complex acronyms. I've heard the term called F-SPIES. What does it mean? Is it an allergy-related thing? Is it a food intolerance? If you could talk about food-induced enterocolitis or protein-induced enterocolitis, it will be helpful to our audience. Sure, absolutely. And you're right, allergists, we love our acronyms. And if, we're, you know, if I'm giving a presentation, I'm obligated by law to use right. very complex uh, immunologic cascades that sure. everybody. <laughs> um, okay, so there are, there's immediate onset food allergy that we sort of talked about, IgE mediated within minutes of eating food, hive swelling anaphylaxis. And then we have delayed onset immune responses as well. 
Uh, a lot of these are very poorly understood. The IgE tests that we use for immediate onset allergies, such as skin tests or blood tests, aren't very useful for these delayed onset allergies. But FPIs is one such example. This stands for Food Protein-Induced Enterocolitis Syndrome. It's a mouthful. We'll say FPIs from here on out. Sure. So FPIs is an immune response, which means every single time, it often presents in early infancy, around 6 to 12 months of age. Whenever that baby eats a food, it's not an immediate onset reaction, but one to three hours later, they have profuse vomiting, sometimes followed by diarrhea. There's no test available. You can't diagnose it the first time it happens because there are a thousand reasons why babies can vomit. Uh, but when it happens repeatedly over time in the very classic clinical scenario, that's when we come to the diagnosis. And then we recommend avoidance and we talk about prognosis as the majority of those infants, it magically disappears as they get older. We don't understand why some get it. We don't understand what part of the immune system is necessarily causing it, but we do understand how to diagnose it clinically and then manage it. Sure. Uh, this is a question I often get asked. I'm sure you get asked this question all the time. Are allergies genetics in nature? Can I inherit allergies from my parents and can I pass it on to my kids? Specific allergies are not encoded by chromosomes or genes. So parents who have a penicillin allergy or peanut allergy, they're not going to pass that specific allergy on to their child. But parents who have allergies will pass on a complex set of uh, genetic codes that sort of determine if people develop allergies. And then whether those genes get turned on or off is really complicated like we talked about before. So uh, parents out there who have their own shellfish allergy, you don't have to worry that your child will uh, okay. inherit that. Okay, okay. And the common question then is, if a mom is expecting a baby or lactating, what are the things that she can do or she need not do to prevent allergies in infants? And there is a lot of misinformation out there in the media, social media and various platforms about what a mom should eat, what a mom should not eat during pregnancy and lactation to avoid allergies. We need to leave mothers alone. Uh, there's so much maternal guilt out there. And right. I, tell, I tell mothers all the time, and I, they're often in tears in my office thinking they did something wrong. Even if they wanted to, not that they would, they couldn't cause their child to develop food allergy. They don't, they don't have that much power. Uh, it has nothing to do with what they're eating when they're pregnant or breastfeeding. Uh, it, it's not protective and it's not causative either. Uh, there's been great research that looks at maternal diet. Uh, research looking at probiotics and prebiotics and vitamin D, and none of that really uh, is protective, uh, unfortunately. So um, we used to recommend for babies, so the mother's diet really doesn't matter a whole lot, especially when the baby's in utero. And when they're breastfeeding, whatever mom eats is often broken down, so it doesn't even resemble what a food protein looks like when she first eats it. It gets you know, broken down by digestive enzymes and gets absorbed into her, her breast milk, and it, it's just chopped up into little tiny pieces. So the baby isn't really getting that food allergen necessarily. Um, but we do recommend that for infants, once they start eating solid foods around four to six months of age, start with the normal rice cereal or oatmeal or purees. And we actively recommend introducing allergenic foods into their diet around that time and keeping it in their diet. That's our best path towards preventing food allergy. We don't, it's not, nothing to do with the mother. Uh, take, take them off the hook. There's enough guilt, I promise you. <laughs> but with the baby, let them eat. We used to say avoid, avoid, avoid. Turns out that was the wrong information. Now we have excellent evidence that shows it's very safe to introduce these and it's very effective for the majority of children. But unfortunately, nothing we do is 100% effective. Uh, so we still will have some food allergies, but hopefully we can prevent a lot of others. Right. right. And I think, I think this is very important for mothers to know out there who are doing a great job of lactation and breastfeeding their children, which is very, very important for at least four to six months of initial baby's life 
to continue with breastfeeding and generally make sure that there is no guilt on their part in helping with breastfeeding, which is great. Uh, could you talk to us about peanut butter introduction? This has been a topic of discussion for the last five years since the guidelines came out. And there has been a total seismic shift from holding peanuts till about 15 months of age, peanut butter specifically, not peanuts, and then introducing them as early as six to nine months of age. Could you comment on that a little bit? And what's the best safe way to introduce peanut butter in a child's diet at about six months of age? Or yeah, this, is, this is a great, one of the most uh, landmark um, studies in our field uh, was the LEAP trial, which was published almost six years ago, I believe. And that was the first time that they demonstrated that if you take infants at higher risk to develop peanut allergies, specifically those with eczema, or with other food allergy like egg allergy, and you randomize them, one group avoid peanut completely until they're five, the other group introduce it before 11 months of age and keep it in their diet. The group that ate it had like a 86% reduction in peanut allergy at five years of age compared to those who avoided it. Uh, it was just, uh, I'll never forget the meeting where they presented their data. It was, uh, you know, all the major media headlines were there and it was really remarkable. So based on that and now subsequent studies, we know that early introduction is the way to go. It's very safe to do. We do want to make sure we don't present any choking hazard to babies. So no whole or partial nuts until they're about four or five years of age. But right. there's a variety of peanut products that people can use, including um, uh, peanut flour or peanut powder. You can take some peanut butter and thin it with water. Uh, and then as infants get a little bit older, they can eat it more straight. Uh, but there's great guidelines and, and easy information that people can access on how to do that. If you look at the NIAID website for early peanut introduction, they have wonderful handouts. And I was honored to be actually to be part of that panel that wrote the guidelines right. and came up with that. Great. It's great to hear an expert uh, like you talking about peanut butter allergy. Common question, if a mom or a dad has peanut butter allergy or a sibling has peanut allergy, is it still safe to introduce peanut to that baby, peanut butter to that baby at about six months of age, or should we do different uh, strategy? Yeah, we don't recommend doing any type of, you know, pre-screening testing because our food allergy tests have a lot of false positives. In the United States, it is advised to consider a peanut allergy test for those babies if they have severe eczema, truly severe eczema, which is quite rare, um, or if they already have egg allergy, but very few of those infants, you know, qualify for that. So we can just feed away. And yes, it's safe to do. You can, if you have food allergy, you can be around it casually. It can be in the home. We just take precautions to make sure it's not accidentally ingested. Right. Uh, and then soap and water can remove from surfaces and silverware, uh, dishwashers as well. So we have those conversations with families all the time about, we recognize other people in the home may have this allergy, but we can prevent this baby from developing those allergies if we take these steps. Uh, so we walk through, we walk them through uh, some simple precautions to take and they can do great like that. Sure, great. Uh, what is allergy to red dyes? We often hear that a medicine cannot be prescribed to a child because of red dye. So what is this about red dye which makes it more attractive? And we have heard about allergy to red dyes for the longest period of time. Yeah, so it's all made up. Um, <laughs> okay. There are no allergies to artificial dyes. Uh, they're literally okay. too small to cross-link the IgE antibody. But the roots of this go back 50 years. And in the 1970s, there was a lot of concern in the United States, especially of all the chemicals that we were exposed to in our environment. That's when there was first recognition that pesticides can be harmful and things like that. So there was a, a hyperacute awareness of what types of chemicals are being used. And there was a physician, uh, Dr. Feingold in California at the time, who hypothesized that uh, artificial colorings and preservatives were uh, harming children. 
uh, specifically causing quote unquote hyperkinesis, which we call ADHD these days. And through a series of very poor methodological experiments, uh, Dr. Feingold thought that he discovered the root cause of some of these issues. Long story short, um, those studies have not been replicated. Uh, people have tried and you can't find the same findings and there really is nothing to the hypothesis that these artificial food colorings are causing allergic reactions or, or any major problems. Uh, but no, it, it, there's, a, there's a lot that goes into it and it really is rooted almost 50 years ago. Sure, thank you. So it's relatively safe to prescribe amoxicillin, which is pink, or azithromycin, which is pink color, to some of these patients who have been labeled as allergy to red dyes, probably. Oh, Every zero case concern. is different. Yeah, zero concern at all. And then right. now that's going to lead to an interesting conversation with that family because they firmly believe that the right. child is allergic right. because they've been told that mistakenly or, yeah. or for whatever reason. But from a right. medical standpoint, there's no, no concerns at all. Sure, thank you. Uh, this is summertime, and it's beautiful weather here in Chicago. And we get a lot of kids with mosquito bites and bug bites and their arms swell, their legs swell. So this is most likely a common mosquito bite, an insect bite with an allergy. And what do we do for them? And obviously given the fact that these bites really get infected, I was wondering how do you manage if somebody has a quarter size swelling on their arm or a leg or an eye after a mosquito bite or a bug bite? It's important to recognize that allergic reactions to mosquitoes and insects are quite rare. Uh, we do see venom allergy from uh, wasps and yellow jackets and hornets and honeybees and things like that, but that is pretty evident because it would be more like anaphylaxis after being stoned. But these localized um, swelling and, and redness and itching is quite common. Part of it's a natural response. Mosquitoes uh, have chemicals in their saliva that they inject into us, which helps thin our blood so they can drink our blood, basically, is what they're trying to do. And that can just be irritating for some people. There's a condition called papular urticaria, which is exaggerated um, swelling and redness after being bitten by insects. Uh, and it can be quite bothersome. Uh, the treatment is recognizing that it's not an allergic reaction. It's not cellulitis. This isn't an infection. You get redness and warmth and swelling just from the irritation of the skin. And then treatment would be trying to prevent these from happening, which is really hard to do. But if you have you know, mosquitoes in your home, we try around your home, we try to you know, get rid of uh, sources of standing water. And sometimes you have to spray neighborhoods or, or wearing long sleeves when outside, which can be hard to do when it's hot. But whenever these bites do occur, using a topical steroid can be very helpful. And I, I usually recommend doing it two to three times a day, a little higher potency. So the over-the-counter hydrocortisone often doesn't cut it, but something like triamcinolone would be very helpful. And then treating any itching with either topical anti-itch creams, or you can try like an oral antihistamine as well. Sure. My favorite question, blood tests for allergies versus skin tests. How are they different? Are they same? What are the sensitivities and specificities and which conditions you would use a blood test versus a respiratory panel versus a, a skin test? Yeah, this is a great question. I, I'm glad you brought it up. These IgE tests are designed to detect specific IgE towards allergens. They are not screening tests. They both have high rates of false positive results. And it, um, use of uh, these large panels, there is no clinical indication to do that. It leads to overdiagnosis, misdiagnosis, and oftentimes unnecessary food avoidance. So we have to use these IgE tests thoughtfully. The history is always the best test. If yeah. you're worried about food allergy, then you need to have symptoms every time you eat a food. If you've never eaten the food, uh, we don't know if you, if you are allergic and the test can only indicate likelihood of allergy. Or if you're eating a food without issues, you're simply not allergic. Same thing with environmental allergies. If you don't have nasal symptoms of itching, sneezing, stuffy nose, runny nose, I don't care what the tests show because I'm not going to treat you for that, right. uh, for symptoms you don't have. 
When it comes to a skin test, we do these in the office on a regular basis. If we place a drop of liquid allergen on the back and we can test for foods and inhalant allergens and we use positive and negative controls to compare to, we gently introduce by a little scratch on the skin to the skin cells. It doesn't cause any internal reactions or systemic reactions and we wait 15 minutes. If that person has IgE antibody bound to the mast cells in the skin, then those mast cells will open up and release histamine and histamine causes a hive. The size of the hive indicates the likelihood that allergy may be present. Right. Blood testing uh, is very different. It actually measures levels of specific IgE in the bloodstream, but there are a lot of reasons why we see false positives. Some kids just have total IgE levels that are very high because of eczema and asthma, so they get nonspecific binding. There's a lot of cross-reactivity that occurs on the assay that doesn't occur in real life, which can give you false positives as well. And then just because you have a number in your blood, that means you're sensitized, but it does not mean you're allergic. And about 40% of people are sensitized, meaning they have elevated IgE, but they're not actually allergic. So if we right. go by IgE testing alone, we're going to misdiagnose the vast majority of people. So that's why all these at-home tests that are being offered for IgE testing, it's a really bad idea. These tests are not screening tests. They absolutely have to be used um, and interpreted according to the clinical history. Right. Well, thank you very much. Again, you are keeping up with the mission of bursting myths and, and wrong medical information. Thank you. So... So to elaborate a little bit more on your previous point, if an allergy blood test shows that my child is allergic to peanuts, but if he's eating peanut butter without any problems, I'm understanding that's probably an overdiagnosis. Yeah, you shouldn't be testing in the first place. <laughs> so okay. we, have, we need to use the history. I mean, if you're eating peanut butter, why on earth right. would you test for allergy to it? Right. Um, these right. IgE tests are not pregnancy tests. It's not a qualitative, it's not a yes, no answer. They are sure. not diagnostic in and of themselves. They offer a range of sort of values and a range of different results that have to be interpreted uh, with experience and understanding of the limitations of these tests. Uh, I like to say that people want to assign very precise values to these tests that are very imprecise by nature. Right, well, thank you. So obviously no discussion is complete on allergies without treatment of peanut allergies. Is there a treatment? Does a child grow out of peanut allergies five, 10, 15, 20 years? And what is SLIT therapy? Yeah, first and foremost, there are no um, evidence-based identified cures for food allergy. There's a lot of folks out there that will uh, tout their non-evidence-based approaches and they will make claims that aren't backed by evidence. So I want people to be uh, cognizant of that. Many children will outgrow their peanut allergy and other food allergies. That's why it's really important to monitor over time. And we often repeat testing annually. Because uh, we don't want to, you know, put, we don't want to miss it if people can actually tolerate sure. it. But we also don't want to employ any type of therapy if they don't need it. Um, there are different approaches to desensitization, and desensitization for allergies has been used for over 100 years. And those are allergy shots for inhalant allergies. And we can desensitize anybody to anything where you basically take what you're allergic to, we dilute it down very low so it doesn't cause a reaction, and then we gradually introduce it and then build it back up. So with oral immunotherapy, you're actually eating the food. With SLIT, like you mentioned, sublingual immunotherapy, you're just putting liquid allergen under the tongue. Um, and these are ways to introduce the allergen to the immune system. And over time, it can help um, desensitize to the point where symptoms may be less. Now, these need to be considered every single day. So, and these are very highly supervised. We do not recommend that people do this on their own. Right. Uh, they're very uh, well-constructed, established protocols for safety reasons, because there's risk involved. And if you knowingly give somebody with peanut allergy peanuts, you're putting them at risk to have a reaction to it, including anaphylaxis. So avoidance and avoidance strategies and education and self-management skills are always going to be a priority. 
even for people who undergo oral immunotherapy or sublingual immunotherapy, they're not cured of their peanut allergy. Very few can freely eat as much as they want. They still need to have their epinephrine available, uh, but it can be a, a treatment option to consider for those who are exquisitely sensitive where they may have a severe reaction from eating very small amounts of peanut or for those who truly have a, a poor quality of life due to anxiety and, and concerns about exposure in the, in the environment. Thank you. Thank you. Any concluding remarks about allergies in general, which is a very broad topic and you covered it very well today in the last 20 minute discussion. Uh, thank you, Dr. Dave. Any concluding remarks and comments for our parents who are listening to your video today? Well, first, I, thank you very much for inviting me. This has uh, been a fun conversation. We could talk about this for hours, I'm sure. Um, but I, I would just say to everybody, um, evidence changes over time. Our understanding of the immune system and allergies absolutely evolves. The conversation I have with families in the office now, I, I simply wasn't having three years ago. Right. So and, you know, preconceived notions often you know, feed into our cognitive biases and people perpetuate the same misconceptions over time. So we have to be open to, to looking at and understanding new evidence. And I would say to families out there, especially if you were told something five, 10 years ago, it's probably incorrect at this time. So it's worth right. right. I know in your book, you talk about biases and there's a whole chapter on various biases and how we are led to believe misinformation, which probably is no longer true anymore. So thank you again. And I, I wish you the best and, and, and thank you for your time and giving a very important advice to our parents today. Thanks a lot, Dr. Dave. My pleasure. Thank you.